Good evening, good citizens. This is your host, Clifford Brooks, and this is April 2022's Dante's Old South. Now, since April is Poetry Month, it only seems apropos that I'll feature the winners of the Southern Collective Experience's Asian American Chatbook Contest. The judge, Lee Herrick, told me it was nearly impossible to choose a winner. And after you hear those who did place, you'll quickly discover that he's absolutely right. Before we go on, I want to thank WUTC and NPR for their ongoing love and support, specifically Richard Wenham, whom, without his help and guidance, this show would be, as they say, a hot mess. Now, if you find yourself in Atlanta or Nashville and need a swank place to sit, have a drink, smoke a cigar, and talk to friends, check out the Red Phone Booth. If you're ever in Blowing Rock, North Carolina and need a place to lay your head, don't go any further than the Meadowbrook Inn. It's truly beautiful to have you with me this hour, and I hope that love, support, kindness, and goodwill are on your heart, your neighbors, your family, and your friends. Now, with good cheer, a smiling face, and a full heart, let's jump in with an interview with the first place winner of this contest, Monica Kim. And up now on Dante's Old South, we have Monica Kim, the first place winner in our Asian American chapbook poetry contest. Monica, how are you doing? Hi, Clifford. Um, I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. Um, and thank you for, for choosing me as, as first place. I, I'm really honored. Well, it wasn't me now. It was, uh, it was Lee Herrick. And Lee Herrick has told me that he had a hard time, almost an impossible time, uh, choosing a winner for this contest. And then when I read your book, uh, it's like lightning, not just in a bottle, it's lightning period. Um, and I want to know where that energy comes from. Uh, so let's give the people a little bit of you by telling me something about yourself. Uh, something about me. I, um, I'm queer and I'm Korean American, and so I, a lot of my like writing and thoughts sort of come from my identity. So I think that fuels a lot of like my passion for writing, just coming, um, thinking about um, sort of how I move through the world. Um, but I also um, love reading. I I love connecting with people. Um, outside of writing, I like to. Um, organize and, and volunteer for uh, mutual aid efforts. Um, uh, and so I think a lot about um, community and, and the world and sort of um, all of these different uh, sort of um, new ways of being and, and trying to, um, I guess, try, try, <laughs> try, trying to survive while also finding joy in some spaces. And I think writing for me is is a space to do that um and so that's a little a long a long-winded weird way of, of saying a little bit about who i am that's not weird nor long-winded that's one of the most <laughs> succinct answers to that question i've ever had on this show um what uh when did you realize that poetry was your voice oh um it's 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 interesting because i i started out with writing 
fiction and I still write fiction but <laughs> um but um I, I guess like it, I started writing poetry around 2017 I think and I, I took like a poetry class in college and um um was really just fell in love with like the syllabus was, I remember it was my first introduction to like erasure or found poems and I had never seen stuff like that before um and I took, I continued taking like, like at least one poetry class a year. And then when the pandemic started, um, for some reason, I think maybe because I was in a more like reflective space, I just felt drawn towards poetry more rather than, I took kind of like a little bit of a break from fiction writing um, and sort of gravitated more towards writing poetry. And so um, I still write fiction, but I think there is like something really, um, really, I don't know, unique about poetry that is, is just, I'm not sure if I, if I completely have like a fully fleshed out thought of, about it, but it's, yeah, that's what I'm, I've been drawn to it. And again, uh, you doubt yourself, but that is still one of the best answers I have ever gotten <laughs> for this question. <clears throat> now, Dream Reludes, um, that is your winning book. Um, tell us something about this collection. So I, the way that I write, like, I think I tend to think in, like, series or, like, themes. And so um, I, I started keeping a dream journal um, at the beginning of 2021. And I, I've always had, like, really vivid dreams and, like, recurring dreams um, and, and nightmares. And I, I usually am someone who, who can usually remember my dreams. So I wanted to start keeping a dream journal. And so... As I was keeping this dream journal, I started noticing like patterns um, that I hadn't really like thought of before until I started writing it down. And then I, I had the idea of wanting to turn my dreams into poems because I guess there's something like the repetitive part of it is, can be poetic. And sometimes like poems would show up in my dreams. Like I remember I had a dream once where I was reading a poem, but I was reading the wrong poem, and it was like a stress dream. Um, and so, um, yeah, and I, I, um, when I was I started writing the poem, but also through a workshop got introduced to um, Douglas Kearney's works, and was really inspired by like the visual nature of of Kearney's poems and sort of the experimental parts of it. And so, um, Dream to Lose, I wanted to think about like how dreaming life and like waking life can like sort of blend and mesh together in weird ways and then also wanted to like experiment on the page as well in that way to sort of reflect that. When you say experiment on the page, I love this um, from a technical standpoint. What do you mean by experimenting on the page? Um, I think uh, like an example would be like one of the poems I have like the shape of like a car on the page and I have like uh, like lines in the car and then there are some lines that like spill out of the car and I was just thinking of different ways to like I guess um, visually show the, like that sort of way that that dream that like, your subconscious when dreaming and then your conscious while awake can sort of like blend and mesh together in in weird ways and I think like part of the reason why I also wrote this is because um a lot of the things that I was thinking about while awake would like seep into my dreams. And then sometimes the things that I would be dreaming about would also like 
I would be overthinking about while I was awake. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But then I feel like dreams could also be like really be like imaginative spaces to like yeah. imagine new, new ways of, of being and new structures um, that aren't harmful or that could transform. And so I wanted to explore that on the page as well. When you talk about the poem that's in the shape of a car, when you first thought of that poem, did the car shape come first or did the poem come first? No, the poem came first. I, it, 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 yeah, it wasn't until I, I read, I read um, um, Tarek Dobbs' uh, poem called, it's like X-Ray Dispatch in Ben Gurion Airport. Uh -huh. um, and they have like, the poem is like in the shape of a body. Right. And when I read that, I was like, whoa, like, what if I, what if I did that, but with like, because the poem is about like a nightmare in a car, like, what if I did that in a car shape? So that, that inspired me to sort of think about that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Because I, I've, I've read uh, poems that you, I, I, I'm kind of staunch about this. You've, I've read poems that I, I could tell that someone had the design before the material and it mm. reads stale, you know? Uh, when I read your poems and when I see what you do, there's a freedom there that, that I just wanted you to say on the radio, how it, it, you know, the idea of the poem has to come first before the design or it, it, it feels stilted, you know, um, I want people to have, um, just a taste of this winning chat book. Would you mind, um, reading one of the poems from this collection, but first telling it, telling us a little bit about the inspiration and where it came from. first and then read. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to read a poem called and it's a pen tune and um, I think this is another example of necessarily writing it. I didn't know that it was my decision. Um, it's, it's about a recurring dream that I've the pandemic started in um, a while actually one that I don't remember. Um, but I would have this like, I would have these like stressed recurring dreams um, related to COVID about like forgetting my mask somewhere um, or like my mask just like disappearing <laughs> um, or um, like going into a crowded place and like not being able to like leave or, or um, because, um, because I am um, Asian thinking about um, a lot of the uh, anti-Asian violence that's increased um, due to like the former president calling it the China virus and other 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 yeah. things. Um, yeah. And so um, those things would like uh, I think I think about like in my waking life, and then they would <laughs> occur in my dreams, <laughs> and it was it was not fun because I feel like sleeping is supposed to be like your time to rest. Right. Um, and so um that's the sort of the inspiration for this poem and that kind of the recurring part i wanted to use a pen to lines repeat and i wanted to experiment with that now uh, read the poem for us please okay great so this poem is called recurrence if sleep is supposed to be escape i close my eyes but find myself coughing everyone staring at me I promise it's not COVID, or is it? I walk underneath an overhang, mask on wrist, but I find myself coughing, two strangers staring at me, 
One lunges, knife blurring. Is it because I'm Asian? I walk underneath a city, mask not on wrist, mask nowhere to be found. Oh God, where's my mask? A friend lunges, hand blurring into mask. I am invited to a crowded restaurant by coworkers, mask nowhere to be found. Oh God, where's my mask? There is no exit sign. I am invited to a crowded restaurant by friends. The collar of my shirt becomes my mask. There is no exit sign in this world. I am wandering campus again. The collar of my shirt becomes my mask. Mask forgotten on the memory counter. I am wandering the city again, stumbling into a party with maskless guests. Mask forgotten on the memory counter. Tell me, when does this end? Stumbling into a bar with maskless guests. If sleep is supposed to be escaped, I drive away from my dreams. Monica Kim, it is an honor to have you on the show. It's an honor to give people <laughs> just, just a piece of this book. And you get copies and it'll be for sale on the SCE website, www.southerncollectiveexperience.com um, this summer when we release it. So if people want to find that, Dream Interludes. Did I say that right? Yes. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Before you and I practiced this a dozen times, and I'm still paranoid about that. Dream Interludes is uh, a brilliant book. Uh, Lee Herrick loves it. Uh, it was a difficult decision for him, but this is the one he chose. And once I read it, I found out uh, how hard his decision was and how brilliant you are. Um, Monica Kim, again, first place winner of the SCE Asian American Chapbook Poetry Contest. Thank you for giving us a piece of your time. Thank you, Clifford, and, and thank you to Lee as well. Um, just, yeah, thank you to Southern Collective Experience and Blue Mountain with you. I, I really appreciate it, so thank you.
And next on Dante's Old South, we have Kaylee Peterson, the second place winner of our Asian American Chapbook Contest winner. Kaylee, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you, Clifford? I am fine and dandy like sour candy. But before we talk about more about me, which inevitably we'll always talk about because all roads lead back to Clifford, tell me about you. Yeah, so a little bit about me. Um, I am a uh, graduate of Columbia University, which a bachelor's degree in classics. So my undergraduate specialty was ancient Greek, which I think really comes through in my poetry. Um, I graduated uh, way, way back in 2017, which feels like a century ago. Um, and since then, uh, I've recently started a new job as a software engineer. So that's kind of what I do during the day, coding. Um, and other things that I love besides poetry include opera singing, writing speculative fiction, and um, video games, actually. There is a world we need to talk about inside that answer. <laughs> um, coding. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you find that there is a poetry in that as well as what you do in words? That's interesting because coding is such a structured way of writing because mm. you have to talk to machines. So it lacks the flexibility of like a human language because in human language, we can play with punctuation. We can play with grammar. We can play with formatting and spacing. But when you're talking to a machine, code has to be written in a very specific way so the machine or the computer can interpret it. Um, so it's a much more rigid way of doing things, but uh, I really have enjoyed it and enjoyed the career transition into becoming a software engineer. And I found that it has kind of strangely influenced me when thinking about fiction, but more so on the sort of like intellectual idea side, like what does it mean to be an AI and artificial intelligence? What does it mean to have consciousness as a computer? Less so on sort of a line by line level, but I'm excited where that path might lead me to. This is the best interview ever. This is, I love this. I've really, I've never been able to talk about math and poetry in the same conversation. Um, now, you already mentioned fiction. Let's, let's get ahead and talk about that. You have an agent now uh, finding a place for your novel. Let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, it was um, just a really crazy, chaotic, thrilling, and also nerve-wracking experience to try to find an agent. So I started a novel in 2018. I really had no idea where I was going with it. I think at the time I was, I would have been around 23. So I was basically like a little baby. I had just graduated from college. I was still like calling my parents every week, trying to figure out how to work a washing machine and how to like sort of live right. <laughs> outside of that bubble. Like you think you know everything at 23, but you really know nothing. So right. I, I decided to start a novel and um, I actually finally finished a first draft last fall, started to polish it, and then um, really started seriously submitting to agents around November. And then I signed um, in late February, early March with my agent. So it was really quite the process. Um, but I'm thrilled to be in revisions with it and hopefully go on submission soon. Do you mind if I ask you what the novel is about? Yeah, so it's um, kind of a subject very close to my heart. It's a work of Midwestern Gothic fiction that leverages Chinese mythology to explore anti-Asian racism, um, sexuality, queerness, and the heart of the Midwest. So it draws on my background as a queer Chinese adoptee who grew up in Nebraska where my family owns a farm and kind of dealt with those very insular, very rural um, sort of communities of like whiteness and masculinity. Um, and within the story of the novel, it's about this man, Nicholas Morrow, who returns 20 years after escaping his sort of abusive family home. His father is dying. And so it's sort of like cat on a hot tin roof where they summon everybody back to the house yeah. for kind of one last thing. 
And he goes and his estranged brother who was disowned for marrying an Asian woman has also come back. And so he and his brother, Joshua, old tensions flare up again. And he actually starts an affair with Joshua's wife. And that leads to sort of this explosion of the tensions of race, class, and even the supernatural within the family. With your work in the classics, your degree, Mm -hmm. how did that factor into your novel? I feel like my classics degree has really factored into every piece of writing right, I've done. Right, right, yeah. And it's really obvious. I mean, a part of me is, I joke to people that I have to like justify this degree somehow. <laughs> so I got to No, I gotta you don't. No, you I gotta don't. I got to use it. Um, right. But I, it was funny because I didn't go to college thinking I would major in classics. I thought I was going to be like an English and psych major or something. Right. But I remember... Um, the the first two weeks of classes at, at my undergrad you can go to any class really and you can like sign up and then drop sort of you know freely it's kind of like a trial period right. so I saw this class it was like at 6 p.m and I had an open 6 p.m slot and it was ancient Greek and I was like that looks fascinating so I just decided to sign up kind of YOLO and right. I had a really wonderful teacher um Columbia Charles who also was very kind to me and supported my writing as a freshman and um I just really like fell in love and I just decided to major in classics it was also a bit of a smaller department than the English program so that kind right. of was right. like a bit of a, a thing for me where I didn't want to be in this huge program with all yes these yeah so I ended up in classics because I felt like classics to me was also it had a lot of the benefits of an English program you read literature you deal with history but you also are forced to learn these foreign languages and you know whether we like it or not the western canon is sort of founded on these literatures and whether or not maybe we want to interrogate it or complicate it with people of color or queerness that's sort of a conversation I think we've been having more recently um it's still something that has influenced a lot of like major writers from like centuries ago to now Number one, we have to come back on another month and talk about this further. I'm serious. We, we have to have you on another show in the future, maybe June, July. That's going to be happening. If you're, if you're comfortable with that, that'd be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, let's get to your uh, manuscript, uh, Vanishings. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that was the second place winner. And the Southern Collective Experiences, Asian American Chapbook Contest. Um, before we get into a poem about it, tell me about how you chose poetry or did poetry choose you? I think that's really hard to say. I'm going to say that poetry chose me, although there have been points where I've shied away from poetry even or come back to it. So even as a young, like a really young kid, I would write this like, frankly, very bad free verse. Um, But I think poetry is something that is really, it has a low barrier to entry. I mean, when people think about writing a novel or even a short story, that's something that'll take you days and days, weeks and weeks, months and months. But you can write a poem in an afternoon if you really try. And so I think that was what really got me into writing. And I remember being really young and being really thrilled by poets like T.S. Eliot um, that I would read like just on the internet because you can read a poem in like, you know, 20, 30 minutes, even a long one. Um, But there have also been times where I've had to kind of more consciously choose poetry. So when I started writing my novel, that really became my focus. Um, And then I would have to sort of consciously decide, okay, I'm gonna like take a break and spend some time writing poetry. I'm gonna engage more with this art form. I think what really thrills me about poetry is how you can both sort of um, shrink and expand it. It sort of allows you to express a lot with an economy that you don't have in prose. Like you can have a two line poem that says so much, but you can also really expand it. I mean, the epic works like Homer, you can have like a novel length narrative inside of a poem and it's still a poem. Um, And poetry actually was like one of the most dominant forms of like writing for a long time. We didn't really get novels until much later. So that's the other thing. It has such an ancient um, kind of context and history going back 
centuries or millennia. Now, in specific to vanishings, mm -hmm. uh, tell me about how this bit of genius came to you and the theme behind it. So some of the poems were written before I even felt like I had a chapbook in my hands. And some of them kind of came together when I started to think, wow, we're kind of coalescing in, in some direction or form. Um, so I would say that closer to the date of the competition that I saw like advertised, I started to think like, do I have a chapbook? I've always really admired Lee Herrick. I mean, he's one of the most major yeah. Asian American adoptee writers and he comes from a different generation of adoptees than I do since he came from South Korea, which started its adoptions out of the country earlier than China, which is my like um, birth country. So like, I've always really looked up to him and admired him. And I was like, I'd really like to enter this competition, right. but I don't even know if I have a job book. <laughs> so I like kind of just went into the poems that I had written and I realized there was this sort of theme of, um, I mean, there's a lot of different themes going on, but I think the ones that I've honed in on are like things like loss, alienation, um, queer Asian womanhood, um, being like sort of alienated as an adoptee and even just alienated within like a, a fictional space. So using the voices of these like um, fictive and historical figures to like narrate that that loss and alienation. So I kind of like threw it together, just, you know, sort of like, we'll see what happens. And, um, you know, I was very lucky and blessed to have been selected. So you're going to read us a uh, poem from Vanishings. Uh, mm -hmm. Before you do, uh, explain it a little bit and tell us where it came from. So I'm going to read the first poem in the chapbook. It's called A Threnody. Um, and it actually sort of had a very different form before I revised it. So I usually actually don't revise poems. So this was really unusual because this poem really spoke to me in a certain way, but I felt it was kind of not in its final form, so to speak. So I really went back in and, and started to pick it apart. Um, a threnody is like a Greek term. Well, it's an English term, but it comes from the Greek, like a, a wailing song or a song of mourning. And I initially wrote it around the time of the, um, the hate crimes against Asian American women um, in the Atlanta shooting. So it came initially from a space of very like mournful, very like painful um, sort of reflections on Asian Americanness and, and being an Asian woman. Um, and then when I went back and revised it, I felt that I wanted to extend the ancient Greek underlying sort of thread further. And so I brought in the sort of disjointed second half, which more explicitly deals with ancient Greek and that literature. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to bring in was the sense of like shock. So in this really wonderful translation of the Iliad by Christopher Logue called War Music, he uses um, all capitalizations yes. to to, um, yeah, to indicate the appearance of the gods or the appearance of something wild and shocking. And so that's why there's, it's almost like two poems in one. There's the first half, which is more reflective of my background. And the second half, with a, which I feel is sort of more of a um, stream of consciousness interrogation of ancient Greek and its relationship to my life. And then finally, the image of um, this doe appears, the, the killing of the doe, the, the sacrifice of a deer, which is very Greek. But then I link that back to my family in the sense that I am the doe and I am the sacrifice that my family has killed. I don't want to make people wait. So read this for us, please, ma'am. Sounds great. A Threnody, in which a white person asks me, where are you from? The edge of colonial imagination the burnt ash beneath the family tree, the Orient, the Middle Kingdom, wooden ships burning in the Yangtze. In Naning, all that I am is a column of unbroken ice, a carcass already dying on the hospital steps. 
Let me shatter like precious crystal, a thousand shards of porcelain, hold them to the light. See how they glitter, my body a cracked vessel, cobalt oxide set a fire in the kiln. In which a white person asks me, where are you really from? Smiling blonde women in red and white, my mother, hair in curlers, let's drive to Omaha this weekend. Barbecues, corn on the cob seared to ecstasy. My reflection monstrous, repulsive, as was predestined. I am the imposter, the leftovers at Thanksgiving. Toss me away, wheat from chaff, discard the innards. In the absence of music, there is only silence. In the absence of text, there is only empty space. In ancient Greek, the verb to bewail is gaemonai. Below, please detail the practice of mourning in Homer. I have written for you. In the field, my cousin has shot a doe. She is dying. He slashes my throat, blood woven into the loom of grass. Uh, first of all, if you would let me publish this poem in our uh, summer issue of the Blue Mountain Review, that would be fantastic. I ain't gonna hold you to it, but I would love you to agree to that. It would, it would fit beautifully if you'd be cool with that idea. Um, yeah, it's been previously published. So it would be a reprint. Is that? I am groovy with that all day long. Uh, genius is genius on one page to another. Uh, and I want this to, if you feel comfortable with that, um, Kaylee Peterson, mm -hmm. uh, this, this, tell me a little bit more about Vanishings. Yeah, so Vanishings is a chapbook. I, I guess, as I mentioned, it sort of came together a little serendipitously. Um, it wasn't something that I wrote, like planning it for, to be a chapbook. And I sort of constructed it later. Um, but I think the the first and last poems of the chapbook, like, are really kind of two sides of the same expression and experience. The first one being sort of this like very painful excavation of like adoption, trauma and loss. And the last one being that one in a similar way, but dealing more with like Jewish identity um, with while still having that like thread of the, the ancient Greek, the classical beneath it. And pretty much all the pieces have a thread of the, the historical or the, um, the referential in some way. That's gorgeous. And like I told you before we even started this uh, recording, I want the whole world to know that Lee Herrick found it nearly impossible to find uh, one winner over the other. And uh, after I went over those, I understand why his decision was so difficult. Uh, Kaylee, you are a true genius. Thanks, Clifford. Thank you.
American chapbook contest for poetry. Betsy, how are you doing? Great. This is great. Thank you so much. Now, as I've said before, and I want to tell you, uh, the judge of this contest, Lee Herrick, found it nearly impossible to choose from the top three winners. And I thought that he was just being nice until I read those, and then I realized how impossible that decision was. So a huge, huge love goes out to Lee. Um, and uh, the moment that I had with your book was um, it was a staying power. It had a staying power to it. It had a moment to it. Um, and it, it led me to dark places, but it never let me forget the light. So let me ask you this first question. Um, who are you and why do you write so much about demons? Okay. Um, well, I'm a, a, a woman who works in technology. I live in Seattle and I also write poetry. Um, uh, I'm uh, Japanese Irish in terms of my uh, identity and the demons that I write about are obviously personal demons and obsessions and things like that but I've also done a ton of research and continue to do research to get it right about Japanese folklore mythology and the spirits called yokai which are the um, they're they're essentially demons but they can also be spirits of place or uh, if you have an object that's sort of been around for a hundred years, it starts to take on its own personality and do things. Um, that's also uh, a kind of yokai. And so, I mean, it fascinated me, one, because of my heritage, but two, because I feel like we actually are always sort of wrestling with demons all the time, but we're not always thinking about them. I mean, that might be a computer, that might be, you know, the tree by your house, that could be the spirit by the lake or whatever. Um, and there's a kind of uncanny sense of the world beyond, you know, that we sometimes experience sometimes beyond what we're doing every day, right? Um, the, the magic enters the, enters the chat or something like that. So um, I wanted to make sure that I didn't forget my heritage, but also that I kind of explored some of it in a modern way. Um, and that's what I tried to do with the chapbook that I sent in for the contest. Ayoki. Ayoki. Uh, yes. It's uh, when we're off tape, I'll tell you more about how that applies to my life, but this ain't about me. Ayoki. Um, that leads me to ask you about your identity and the way you see yourself. How does that play into your work? So I'm a third generation um, Japanese American, and that my grandparents came from Japan. 
uh, they, they moved here from Japan. My father actually went to the Japanese American um, internment camps in World War II. So um, we definitely have a kind of historical marker. Um, and then sort of another branch of the family actually uh, it was sort of immortalized in another piece of art done by another family member uh, called Uncle Genjiro's Girlfriend. But essentially, the other branch of the family managed to spark the, uh, I forget the formal name of it, but essentially, like, people of different races are not allowed to marry in California. That law was first instigated because of a relative, a, a far past relative of mine. Um, and they actually, the couple actually fled to Seattle to get married, which is, I mean, that's where I live now, is Seattle. Um, and the art performance piece about this was actually performed uh, locally uh, a few years ago um, uh, in, in sort of a memoriam of that strange journey that they did. Um, again, like I feel like you think that you can sort of escape your family history or your background or whatever, but then you find that it comes into your art regardless. Like and whether you, you think you're going to write a poem about internment or not, or about Japanese demons or not, it seems like it, it will come in, um, take you by the lapels or whatever and say, hey, pay attention. So um, uh, that's sort of where my identities come from or why it seems important to my writing. I don't really get to escape it exactly. <laughs> Have you ever tried to escape? Um, I, I would say, um, and this kind of leads into the the first book of poetry that I have out now, it was published in March. Um, I tried to separate my writing poetry, um, you know, beautiful nature poems or whatever from my day job, which was technology. And very interesting things happened when those barriers eventually crumbled, right? Um, yeah. I had a Hedgebrook residency. I pitched the idea of writing um, a book about women in technology, poems about women in technology. And, um, uh, a lot happened there in terms of like it changed my work brain and it changed my poetic brain because I was finally uniting the two carefully separated parts of me right there was the writing me and then there was the working me but really they're all the same me and I think that's sort of another reason why I feel like um, it's probably time to write the demons book because <laughs> like you're starting to understand that you really don't escape the the, the dynamic emotional forces of your life and you should be at least honoring them, if not celebrating them or aware of them at the at, at minimum, right? Yes, it, it, and, and I may be absolutely ignorant when I say this, but are there words in Japanese for the working you and then the the not working you? The um, ideas of that. If, if there are, my Japanese isn't good enough. I mean, and my Japanese is not great. Um, I, I but I think it's more right like we we go out in the world even we get a you know go to the starbucks and get a coffee and we have a nice persona and we we interact with those people in a certain way and that's the coffee betsy and then you know there's the work betsy that snaps to everything and organizes everything and then there's the poetic betsy who is like standing at an open mic trying to emote something like weirdly they are all the same betsy but we 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 switch these masks on and off or these personas on and off and i think that's a really, it's really powerful. You get more energy if you bring them together. Like they're better. Oh, together yes. In some ways. yes. 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 Now tell us a break point. You just introduced that idea. This, that, this, this is a new book of yours. When's it coming out and how can we get our hands on it? 
Um, it came out in March, and mm -hmm. it's uh, from Tebet Bach uh, is the is the press. Uh, I actually won the Patricia Bibby First Book Award from Tebet Bach, so that that results in publication. Um, it's distributed through small press distribution, which supplies Amazon. Um, I think our local bookstore, Elliott Bay Books, has a few uh, copies. Um, and uh, it, uh, as I mentioned before, it's a book about women in technology and the speaker of the poems, they're really composite. They're not all me. I mean, there's certainly me in there, but other women in tech stories are in there. Um, but I created a, a, a coder girl persona who's the, the voice of the poems and who, um, I don't know, moves through the emotional landscape of trying to be um, herself in a, a male dominated field. Right. And so there's stuff about video games, there's stuff about robots, there's stuff about actual computing language in there um, because I wanted the machines to speak also. Yeah. But uh, the main thread through is this sort of coder girl voice that, um, you know, certainly borrows from me, but also other women and talks about subversively talks about things from her perspective and not necessarily the tech bro perspective or what we might have heard more commonly. Um, and it, it was fun to write and it was tough to write. And I mean, the thing about being in a residency by yourself in a cabin in the woods is you you definitely sort of face, oh yeah, I remember that, that was really painful or whatever. Like you end up thinking about um, different challenges or different situations you were in and you try to forge that into some kind of diamond. <laughs> right. Maybe not all, not maybe not all the poems are diamonds in the book, but I wanted to have that because I didn't see anybody doing that. I saw poets who were not technology people borrowing the language of technology, but not really knowing what they were doing with it necessarily. Or if you were in any way a coder or worked with technology, it didn't quite ring true to you. Um, I think there's definitely more to be said by women in technology in terms of art. And I think uh, there's just more to be heard from that area, right? Like. I'm, I'm waiting for them. I mean, I'm not the only book who should be doing this. I think there should be other books. Um, and I'm hoping other people write them. Now, the place winner in the Southern Collective Experiences Asian American Chat Book Contest. Uh, tell us about that book. What's it called and what's the theme? Um, so the chat book um, sent to the contest was called The Demons Take the Field. And I, I think I had this sort of notion of like, little demons in like soccer outfits or something like that. I'm not really sure what was going on there. But um, I tried to get it. I mean, I'm still evolving a book length kind of manuscript for this, but I was trying to get a kind of nugget or cluster of nuggets together that, that would be the chat book and, and explore the ideas of identity. And um, again, the uncanny, the, the, the things beyond the things we know, but also like, that's also us. We don't know ourselves necessarily all the time very well. And so um, trying to bring out that aspect. Um, um, the poems kind of vary. Um, some of them are literally about yokai demons. Some of them is one about um, being born in Japan. Um, and uh, it's trying to create an effect that allows the reader to to, like I said, sort of get at the, the, the sense of um, uh, forces all around us or 
mysteries and there's just a little bit more magic perhaps present than we we imagine that there would be um, if we just look for it and it might be in ourselves so it might be dark magic but it, but <laughs> there's just a little aspect uh, I, I didn't want it to be every day um, it doesn't read every day at all it it does it actually it does in a real way and that we, we should reflect every day on these things you know dark or light and uh to give people a taste of this um can you read us a poem from that collection sure um this one is called um omagatoki which is um it loosely translates to kind of like the, the witching hour, but it's really the hour that the demons appear and the demons are not appearing. There's sort of another dark hour at about two to three in the, uh, uh, in the morning, um, which I think a lot of cultures actually have. No one likes that hour. No one wants to be woken up at that hour. Um, but this one is actually, the sun has just set and the day and the landscape change. And in that moment, really anything is possible. Like supernatural beings would, might show up, you might discover something. Um, it's, it's that uh, sense of we are, we are transitioning and passing into another kind of place, um, even though all that happened is the sunset and the lighting has changed, right? Um, so it's called Omagatoki. Um, Some worlds never touch except at this hour. The sun has set and turned her back, weeping for a cave where she could be safe once more. All the hair on our necks rose stiff like pig bristles. Our heads capped, ringed with cold. Some winds should never mix. Some winds will never mix. The fishermen said their mouths tasted blood. The women on land said their mouths tasted of fish. Fish too old to eat, fish no one would dare eat. The very air shimmers because it knows it's not supposed to now. Mountain spring witches will comb their long black hair in this wind and smile in recognition of the time. Graves struggle to hold their people back, so eager they are to touch the living. The forest is empty, but we hear the sounds of chopping. The children thought lost in the forest, return changed, and we do not trust them. The sounds of chopping. The sounds of chopping. Where did that idea come from? That line in your poem. Um. So, um, some of the poems that I write th that have the more um, fantasy or supernatural. Um, I, I actually did a workshop called Clarion West mm -hmm. Writers Workshop, which is for science fiction and fantasy writers. It's actually for fiction, um, but I found that after that experience I ended up remember I was writing sort of nature or other kinds of classical poetic topics before then I started writing more of these right where the science fiction or fantasy concept or creatures started entering the chat um, and um, the forest is empty we hear the sounds of chopping um, uh, I'm going to not remember the name of the, of the short story, but I believe it was by Usman Malik, um, a, a sort of a Hansel and Gretel kind of, uh, 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 or actually, no, I take that back. It was in a lecture by him about horror where he talked about a story where, um, you know, Hansel and Gretel is a really 
unnerving story if you think about it. Two kids mm-hmm. are sent off into the woods and their parents are okay with this. Mm-hmm. And then they run into a witch who's got a house made of candy. I mean, mm-hmm. I think Anna Maria Hong has wrote like Fable-esque and a few other um, uh, books that kind of straddle the fairy tale world and the poetic world. And it's not always nice. It's, I mean, it's, it's, the uncanny is not always pleasant. Um, but it's teaching us about human nature the whole time, right? Like, what kind of parents are sending their kids into the into the into the woods to eat from somebody's candy house? I mean, just there's a lot of wrongness in in the whole situation, right? And um, we grew up with the story, and some of it we just sort of accept because we grew up with the story. But um, it's kind of a chilling chilling thing if you take it seriously, right? If the uncanny becomes a real mm-hmm. premise and so I think when I have the children return from the forest they're not going to be the same right they mm-hmm. return changed and we do not trust them and that's because right. they've gone into the uncanny and we've stayed out here safe wherever we are mm-hmm. and you know they've been the candy house <laughs> like, right. they're, they're different kids now right and so right. I, I think all of us kind of have some experiences that change us maybe not candy houses but I wanted to capture that feeling, right? Yes, yes. Betsy Aoki, it has been a blessing to have you on the show and a greater one to read your work. And in the next couple of months, we need to have you back on to talk about uh, the way your life is going and where you want to go. Is that cool with you? Awesome. Thank you so much for having me.
Y'all, it is impossible for me to thank you and show my gratitude for you spending this last hour with me. My name is Clifford Brooks, and this has been April 2022's Dante's Old South. I want to thank again WUTC and NPR for their ongoing support and hope you'll check out the Red Phone booth in Meadowbrook Inn if you're ever in those areas. Oh, now, a big old hug goes out to Richard Wenham again, whom, without his help, this show would never be on the air at all. If you want to know about my books, my teachable courses, or my one-on-one mentorship in creative writing and or adulting with autism, visit my website, www.cliffbrooks.com. Please remember to be kind to one another. I love you and yours. God bless and good night.